Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of Acts. And let me read to you. Um, beginning at verse 36, uh, just a one brief episode out of the life of Peter. You know that name. Um, it starts in verse 36, Acts chapter 9. I'll read to you through uh, the end of verse 43. Here we go. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, does the name Christopher Reeve ring a bell with you? Christopher Reeve? Um, he was the 1978 version of Superman. Now, don't confuse him with George Reeves. George Reeves was the Superman when I was a boy. This is Christopher Reeve, and he was Superman in 1978. You may know his story um, that in 1995, he was uh, competing in a horse jumping uh, competition. His horse threw him, broke his neck, and he was a quadriplegic. And... Um, after a nine-year-long valiant battle against his, his injury, um, he died at the age of 52. Um, I mention him because I want to quote him. I wanna, he, he said something years ago that has stuck with me. Um, and, and it has nothing to do with the injury. It has nothing to do with the accident. Because you might know that uh, Christopher Reeve was also known as quite a p- political activist. He was quite involved in several little movements. And uh, one of the things that he said, um, that has, as I said, that I want to quote, is this. And by the way, this may not be exact, but it's, it's pretty darn close. He said, when it comes to the public square, religion should have no place at the table. When, when, when it comes to the, to the public domain, religion should have no seat at the table. Now, guys, he's not alone in that sentiment. In fact, it's a, it's a widely shared uh, opinion. Um, when, when it comes to the debate about societal issues, religion, uh, it is felt by so many, ignores the facts and, and only offers platitudes. And in this 21st century modern scientific age, you know, we want only the facts. Don't give me any of that superstition. I remember seeing in what used to be my, my favorite TV show, The Big Bang Theory, um, where uh, Sheldon's mother um, uh, was this Bible-thumping uh, fundamentalist from Texas, 
And Leonard's mother was this uh, educated, academic, uh, sophisticated, elite psychiatrist. And they got into this heated exchange in one episode. And she, that is Leonard's mother, called Sheldon's mother what she believed to be just a bunch of superstitions. Well, guys, she's on, they're only reflecting the, the spirit of the age. Um, it, it, pretty, pretty true that the world believes that the, the things that, that we Christians hold on to, um, they're, not, they're not anything having to do with facts. They're, they're just a bunch of platitudes or superstitions or whatever. And whatever um, claims that we might make to be in possession of facts, pretty much ignored. And you know, it's somewhat frustrating to me. I, I see it as part of my job as, as, as presenting to you facts like, uh, like last Sunday. Uh, we talked about the triumphal entry, the uh, called Palm Sunday. Well, I, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that was a fact. Uh, last Thursday night we gathered and, and I read you a passage about Jesus Christ being in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he's, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> is praying and, and he sweats drops of blood. And, and, I, and I say to you, that's a, that's a fact. And then on Good Friday, we, uh, we celebrated his death on a cross. I, I say to you, that's a fact. And then today we've gathered to, to celebrate the, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I, and I said to you, that's a fact. And yet, whatever proof that I, that I offer to, to, to substantiate those claims, um, it's never enough. Uh, I, I can appeal to um, the great Roman historian Tacitus, or I can appeal, I mean, appeal to Josephus, the Jewish historian, both of whom, by the way, uh, acknowledge the historicity of those events, I, I can do that all day long. And it, and it really doesn't change things. It's really, it, does, it really doesn't matter because so many still place all of these Christian claims into the category of, of superstition, or at least very, very close to superstition. So, in defense of Christianity... <laughs> The first thing that I want to do this morning is to, is to point out that we know the difference between um, fact and fiction. We know the difference between fact and non-fact. We, we know, the, we know the, um, the difference between a fact and superstition. And the way that I'm going to do that is that I'm going to tell you three stories. We all love stories. Uh, I want to tell you three stories. One comes from the world of classic literature. The other comes from uh, American history. The other story comes from the Bible. Um, and, and hopefully you'll um, understand um, the, the, the comparison that I'm drawing in, as we go. The first uh, story I want to tell you comes out of the, um, uh, the story of, uh, comes out of the world of fiction. It, uh, it was a, a story written by one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, um, in probably his most famous work called The Chronicles of Narnia. You ever heard of that? It's a, it's a, it's a big, thick collection of short stories. I think there's seven of them in there. And the, the most famous of the short stories in that collection of short stories is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's just one of the chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I remember years ago, back in the late 70s, Kraft Foods um, made a made-for-TV movie out of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I remember watching it with my girls and being so over, so impressed with what, was being, what, what I was watching. But uh, you, you may, we, we don't have time to go through the whole story, but let me, let me just tell you uh, quickly some of the highlights of the, of the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
Uh, you may remember it's four children. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Good old allergies. Um, uh, there's four children. There's Susan, there's Lucy, there's Edmund, and there's Peter. And they're playing a game like hide and seek one day in their house. And they, one of them hides in a wardrobe, which is a piece of furniture, you know? And, and through the back of that wardrobe, they enter into the land, the make-believe land of Narnia. Um, where Aslan, uh, the, the lion, uh, he, he, he rules in, As, in, in, in Narnia. Aslan does. And he, of course, is opposed by the white witch who rules where it is always winter. Always winter and never Christmas. Isn't that a great line? Always winter but never Christmas. Well, anyway, by and by, Edmund goes to a place where he's not supposed to go and he is captured by the white witch. Now, to, to rescue him, as, I mean, Edmund, away from the white witch, Aslan makes an offer to the white, rich, a white witch to exchange himself for, uh, for Edmund. The, uh, the white witch immediately accepts that uh, exchange, and they take Aslan, Aslan, and she and all of her minions, the, the specters and the uh, satyrs and the minotaurs, and they kill Aslan on the stone table. It's a, it's a big scene where they're dancing all around and celebrating that they've killed, they finally killed the king of, uh, of Narnia, Aslan. Um, and then um, after he's, he's dead, they march off triumphantly and they are going to, and this is a quote, they're going to put to death those human vermin. Now, all the while, um, Lucy and Susan are hiding in the bushes watching everything that's going on. And um, once they've left to go off and kill the human vermin, they come out of the bushes um, over to the stone table where Aslan lies. They're kneeling in the wet grass and showering him with kisses and crying and crying and crying. And then finally Lucy says, I can't stand to see that muscle and that muzzle on his, on his mouth. And so she takes the muzzle off. And they want to take the ropes off, the, the ropes that tie him to the stone table. But they can't, they can't do it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this little this little group of field mice. And the field mice nibble at the, uh, the, the ropes on Aslan and, and, and chew the, the ropes apart. And so he's set free. And so uh, Luz, uh, uh, Susan and Lucy stay there for hours, sobbing and crying and kissing on, on Aslan. And so at one point, they get rather cold. And so they decide we need to take a walk, a little walk off and just warm up. Warm up. Um, and so they're, they're walking away and then they hear from behind them a giant noise. Now, at this point, ladies and gentlemen, I'm reading. They heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that, said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I, I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening they're doing something even worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And she turned, pulling Susan around with her. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment, they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end and there was no Aslan on the table. 
Oh, cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body at least. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? And then from behind her, suddenly, a booming voice says, Yes, it is more magic. They looked around, there shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you, aren't you dead, dear Aslan? Not now, said Aslan. You're not a, you're not a, and she couldn't quite bring herself to say the word ghost. Then he leaned over the warmth of his breath and the rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look like a ghost, he said. Oh, you're real, you're real, oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. Now, guys, this next paragraph that I'm about to read you is famous in Christian literature. It is quoted over and over and over again, but it's a response to Susan's question, what does it all mean? Aslan replies, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Death working backwards from death to life. That's how death works backwards. Guys, that's just Lewis's way of describing the the death and resurrection of Christ. There's one more little paragraph I want to read you. But back in the late 70s, when I was watching this on the the, um, television, it was this portion that so impacted me. Let me read it to you. And now, said Aslan, to business. I feel I am going to roar. You had better put your fingers in your ears. And they did. And Aslan stood up. And when he opened his mouth to roar, his face became so terrible that they did not dare to look at it. And they saw all the trees in front of him bend before the blast of his roaring as grass bends in a meadow before the wind. <laughs> when, I, when I saw that, that roar, Aslan's roar, that year when I was pastoring in Florida, my Easter sermon was entitled Aslan's Roar. But do you see, do you see the, the, the point? Just earlier, they had been sobbing and weeping and and nothing but despair and grief. And then something happened. 
And now there is a triumphant roar on the part of, of Aslan. One thing, one event changed everything. Guys, that's not fact. This is out of the world of fiction. But it's C.S. Lewis's way of describing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that one event changed everything. We went from grief and sorrow to a triumphant roar because of one event. Now, that's fiction. Oh, it's great fiction. I love the story. But it's fiction nonetheless. Now, let me tell you another story I love, uh, but it's not from the world of fiction. In fact, it is from the world of American history. Um, in fact, you know of it, I think. You know, one of the, one of the most powerful 30 minutes of movie film I've ever, I've ever watched was the opening sequence in the movie Saving Private Ryan. Do you remember that movie, Saving Private? Oh, it was a good one. Uh, 1998, starring Tom Hanks and uh, Matt Damon. Um, and that opening 30 minutes of D-Day, it was a World War II movie, but it started at, at, at D-Day. There are veterans groups all across the country who say that that first 30 minutes is perhaps the most realistic picture ever given of the brutal suffering of the Allied forces when they, when they stormed on the beaches of, of Omaha Beach and D-Day. Um, an unbelievable price was paid to gain this tiny little foothold uh, in Europe, a few feet of, um, of, of Omaha Beach in, in Normandy, France. At the end of D-Day, after end of June 6, 1944, in one sense, not much had changed. Um, the Almost the entire continent of Europe was still under the power of the swastika. There was just this one little tiny plot of ground, a, a few feet of sand on, on this obscure beach in this one country of France that was not under the domination of Hitler and his army. But that one tiny stretch of land was all they needed. Gang, the truth is, by the end of that one day, June 6, 1944, everything had changed. Now there was an opening. It was, it was just a tiny little crack, but it would get larger every day. The Allied forces would, would get a little stronger every day. There would still be a lot of fighting, a lot of suffering, a lot of dying, but after D-Day, it was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time until France, I mean, Paris was liberated, and then the rest of France. It was only a matter of time until the Allies finally crossed the Rhine and the concentration camps were liberated. It was only a matter of time in early May 1945 when Hitler went into his bunker, committed suicide along with his mistress Eva Braun, and then it was only a matter of time until all of Germany surrendered and it was ready, it was VE Day, 
victory in Europe. And then a matter of weeks, a couple of months later, it was VJ Day, uh, victory over Japan in the Pacific. But, but between June the 6th, 1944, and when the, when the final shot was fired, there was a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. But the truth is, everything changed on June the 6th, 1944. D-Day, D-Day changed everything. After D-Day, VE Day was only a matter of time. We, we proud Americans, we, we know that story. It's a story that is based on fact. That at the end of, of that one day, everything had changed. Which is the same message that one derives from that story about the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. The events in that story, that one event changed everything, just like D-Day changed everything. Now, now one of them is fiction. One of them is fact. But they both offer to us a similar message. That one event changed everything. That brings me to my third and final story. And that's the one found in Acts chapter 9. Um, uh, Peter is, it's only weeks after his very ugly denial of Christ. He's living in Lydda, 11, mon- 11 miles south of Joppa, which is modern day Tel Aviv, where I'll be in about 10 days. Um, and there in Joppa, <clears throat> there is a death of a, of, a, of a Christian woman. Her name is Dorcas or Tabitha. Um, and she dies, and uh, as a result of her death, the church there in Joppa sends uh, a couple of men down to Lydda to get Peter to come uh, back to Joppa with them. And that's what he does. He, he goes back to this, this place, to Joppa, with these men. He enters into this little house, and uh, all the women are crying and showing him all of the little garments that, that she would make for those who needed them and, and all of her acts of charity, says the text. And so he goes upstairs where uh, the, 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 the dead woman is. He tells everybody to get out of the room. They all get out of the room and um, he prays, we're told, in verse 40. And then he says to the dead, he turns and says to the dead woman, the, the corpse, he says... Tabitha, kumi, get up, arise. And she does. She recognizes Peter. He extends her hand. She, she gets up out and stands up. And all the other people come in and they rejoice. Now, guys, there is a very similar story to that one in the life of Jesus Christ. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's found in Luke 8. Uh, and it's the raising from the dead of Jairus's daughter. Do you remember that one? You remember that story? Uh, Jesus is called for, uh, like, um, like Peter was. Um, he arrives and cleans out the room, except for Peter, James, and John, and, um, and the, the parents. And then he turns to the dead 12-year-old girl, 
And he says, now this is the Greek, he says, Talitha kumi. Peter in Acts 9 says, Tabitha kumi. There is a difference of one letter. Tabitha kumi, Talitha kumi. Um, the, the, the command that Jesus issues to the dead girl and the one that Peter is very, actually, it's the same command. Kumi, get up. Now, gang, very similar stories. Luke 8, Acts 9. But what intrigues me is not so much their similarities, but their differences. Gang, um, in the story of Jairus, when, he's with, when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, um, it is clear from the story in Luke 8 that the little girl, now listen, you got to get this, the little girl is still alive when Jesus is sent for. Jesus is making his way to the little girl's house when a servant from the house meets Jesus and Jairus and says to Jairus, oh, Jairus, I'm very sorry, but your daughter has died. Now, gang, listen. At that point, the servant says something very significant. The servant says, Mr. Jairus, now that you know that your daughter is, is dead, he says, why bother the teacher anymore? The implication being, she's dead. There's not anybody, anything that anybody can do for her now. Just let Jesus go on back home because the little girl is dead. And as you know, Death is the end of the story. Don't bother him anymore. By the way, that same sentiment is found in Luke, I mean, in John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and Mary and Martha come and say, if you'd only been here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. But now he's dead and it's all over. Guys, the implication in both of those instances is that death Now that death has happened, nothing can be done. No one expected that Jesus could raise the dead, heal the sick, yeah. But resurrection, nah. Now guys, that's the Jesus story. We come to Acts 9. Let me show you the difference. This occurs only weeks after Jesus is ascended. And when Peter is sent for, Tabitha is very clearly already dead. They've washed her body for burial. Look! But they sin for Peter anyway. Nobody says, oh, she's dead. Forget it. We should have gone to get Peter, but it's too late now. Nobody says that. Tabitha's dead, all right. 
But they still go and get Peter. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, now since Jesus is resurrected from the dead, the Christian church has an entirely new set of expectations. Back then, we thought death was the end of the story. But not anymore. Because don't you see? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And this, this message that Christianity now teaches, a resurrection from the dead, has seeped into this church in Joppa. And they think, oh, she might be dead all right. But that's not the end for us. Let me tell you one quick thing and, and then I'll close. There's one other interesting little intriguing thing about this. Only weeks earlier, Peter had not only denied knowing Jesus Christ, he cursed him. And yet here you see him in that name of Jesus raising the dead. How do you explain that? Because you see, the resurrection had occurred. And that changes everything. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to make a decision. Every one of you. Is that story fact or fiction you see all three of these stories have the same message one event changes everything we went from grief to roaring we went from defeat to victory in World War II and Peter and the rest of the church comes from a place of giving up at death and saying that ain't the end now, tell me, is this fact or is it fiction? You see, I, I think we Christians know the difference. I think it's the non-Christian world that doesn't know the difference between fact and fiction. These stories, one from classic literature, one from American history, and one from the Bible tell a similar story, one event changes everything. And the event in Acts chapter 9 is the event, the fact of the resurrection from the dead. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for you, what is this? Why are we here today? Are we celebrating platitudes or superstitions? Or are we celebrating the fact 
of Christ's finished work crowned with the resurrection from the dead. You do know, don't you, that how you answer that question is going to show up in everything that you do. It's going to show up in your choices and your behaviors. It's going to show up in your value system. It's going to show up in your priorities and how you spend your time. And how, it's going to show up all throughout your life. Either it's fiction and can be ignored, or if it's a fact, It changes everything about us. So which is it? You got to call that. Our Father, I do pray that you will impress upon every listener here the glory of what you have accomplished in Christ Jesus for wicked people like me, that you, have, that you have accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ everything necessary to make it possible to forgive and reconcile me, someone so undeserving. And so, Father, if you have brought people here this morning who have not yet met this Savior of ours, Show him in all of his roaring beauty might men's eyes see him as the resurrected king of glory. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake.